What does it mean to be a man in the 21st century? What can we learn from people who study and work with men? Why does focusing on masculinity matter? These are some of the questions we are here to answer. I'm Alex Bove, inviting you to talk like a man. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, episode seven. This episode came about uh, when I was searching actually for more information about Jewish masculinity. Uh, I realized that that was an element of masculinity that uh, I hadn't, we hadn't really talked about on the show and um, not as much on the blog as I would have liked. And I found this book called Brother Keepers, New Perspectives in Jewish Masculinity. It was edited by Harry Broad and uh, Rabbi Sean Zevitt. Harry Broad, I knew a little bit. Uh, I met him once at a conference, um, and I knew him as a very influential man in men's studies, especially in the 1970s and 80s, but really a, a, a vibrant career even throughout the 90s and 2000s. Uh, and unfortunately, he, he passed away much too young just a, a few years ago. Uh, and then I started doing some research, and I realized that Rabbi Sean Zevitt lives in Philadelphia, and he's the rabbi at the Mishkan Shalom synagogue in uh, the sort of Germantown, Mount Airy portion of Philadelphia. And so I reached out to him and he was amazingly kind and generous and, and, and agreed to talk to me for about an hour. So it was just a lot of serendipity, really. It worked out really, really well. Uh, just a couple more things about Rabbi Zevit. Um, he is, of course, as I said, uh, a rabbi at the Mishkan Shalom. Um, but uh, he was educated, was also educated uh, in Philadelphia at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Uh, he spent some time in some other places. He talks a little bit on the podcast about being in, in Canada for a while. Um, I know he was in Cleveland for a while. I think he also mentioned that and then moved back to Philadelphia. Uh, he also is a recording and performing artist. So he has his own CDs of music. And, and, and at the end of the show, he'll tell you where to reach him. And also a founding member of the original Shabbat Unplugged musical group. So you can check them out as well. And again, we talk about uh, we actually spend most of our time really talking about his work with Mishkan Shalom and uh, Mensch work and some local organizations. But we talk uh, about other aspects of his work and his life and uh, Judaism. And um, it's it's a far reaching conversation. I do have to give just a little caveat. The day that we were recording there was, um, as you might imagine, it's it's August here in Philadelphia, uh, it's summertime, and there were landscapers outside doing work. So you may hear a little bit of background noise here and there. So, you know, uh, please try to forgive us that, you know, we didn't want to stop the interview every five minutes if there was a weed whacker going by the window. Uh, also, uh, I went on site for this interview uh, using my microphone, and uh, it was kind of a, the office was a little bit on the large side and using an omni, omnidirectional microphone there's the sound is a little bit uh let's just say the sound had to fill a big room so um again just please be mindful of that as you listen to this uh and that that's all i'd like to say in preface so without further ado here is my interview with rabbi sean zevitt all right rabbi sean zevitt welcome to talk like a man thank you it's delightful to be here Thank you for giving me your time. I know uh, it's very important. 
Um, so I wanted to start out with uh, hearing about what you're doing right now in your life. So how, how are you working with men right now? Um, it's a great question. It immediately gets me thinking rather expansively. Here we are sitting at, uh, in my office at Mishkan Shalom in Maniac Roxboro, so I don't have to go too much further than you know, this community, this spiritually activist community, in terms of um, you know, the, the uh, identified men or people that I identify across the, the gender spectrum who are here uh, it, as part of the Mishkan Shalom community, mm. or uh, you know, who are part of uh, some of our rental partners and that. And that may be um, you know, men, however they define themselves, in elder years, looking at mortality, are being supported or having a parent uh, who's aging or perhaps is, is leaving this world, uh, right up until, uh, you know, the baby naming for a young boy, or uh, um, in, in this case, uh, you know, a bar mitzvah young man coming uh, of age uh, here, and I work with many uh, of them, uh, as does Rabbi Yael, my rabbinic partner here at Mishkan Shalom, and you know, so working with them on that journey as they move into adolescence, as they move into that moment where they are considered an adult member of the Jewish community is a very profound moment in mm -hmm. life, too. So my work with, um, with men has become a life cycle work, different than when I work, you know, my focus was working more in um, sort of adult pro uh, feminist male affirmative circles in in the men's world or Jewish men's world, as the case may be. So that that pulls definitely the focus for a, a lot of my life. Um, I'm a step parent as well. I have a a stepson um, and uh, um, uh, and my wife's daughters who also have partners. So there's a a family dimension to that. Mm. Uh, my own father is 81 and descending deep, more deeply into Alzheimer's. And so as I feel a lot of my relationship to the work we might do consciously now has that personal dimension of accompanying him and my mother through that journey and what that's bringing up for both of us while language is still possible and, and moments of you know, cognition and, and shared experience. Um, and then in, you know, out in the world, something that's been part of my, my work um, with Yosef August and a number of the men that comprise Mensch work, we have our own nonprofit now um, that we've been doing for over 25 years. Is uh, you know conscious work around masculinities and and Jewish men's experience, or, or I would say and not or um, men who are committed in this way to uh, nurturing and raising Jewish boys, because increasingly the the uh, identified male, whether it's a same-sex couple or not in a household, may not be the Jewish partner. It may be the partner who's not Jewish who's committed to, you know, that, uh, as is the case in our own congregation here, mm -hmm. where and many of the men are not Jewish who are raising young Jewish men, uh, you know, as well as daughters or however the, their, their children identify uh, in terms of their own gender identity. So, you know, there's a, it's a very interesting pastiche uh, you know, just your simple question automatically like double clicked on this large folder. When I think about it in the way you asked it, it's like, oh, it's not just with the Jewish men's retreat and mensch work or even, you know, the, the book Brother Keepers that Harry Broad of Blessed Memory and I co-edited together and that kind of more thought piece. It's actually across the spectrum of life personally and professionally. 
And Menchwork is a national organization? Or? Uh, yeah, we, we've been doing, we initially started with an annual Jewish men's retreat at a, a, a Jewish spiritual retreat center called Elat Chaim, which then became part of Isabella Friedman Retreat Center in Western Connecticut. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we transferred the retreat over there. But then as over the years, well, what about resources? What about regional events? And so just a few years ago, we, um, uh, we formed a wisdom council to oversee the larger um, thinking and, and progress of the work. And it became evident to us that uh, to enshrine our values and our processes uh, and enable us to rent facilities, eat more easily, or you know, maybe even publish things down the road, etc. Having our own nonprofit would be more of a legacy piece than just being a one generational, you know, phenomenon or retreat. So Menchwork was born and a few years ago, um, you know, comprising of the same, you know, men across the age spectrum, because we really try to nurture younger men. And uh, uh, we have a separate track of, of development and um, you know, support for uh, uh, younger men, 18 to 35, to kind of you know come in to raise, be raised up for leadership, as well as uh, you know now having uh, men in leadership in their 70s and 80s. So, like many things that were born, you and I were talking in the in the kind of the pre-interview about our being of different age in these iterations of feminism and and male uh, conscious male identity work, and um, and you know, sort of becoming more aware of identity and men's work and Jewish men's work in the late 70s and 80s. I was the beneficiary of work that had been done, you know, ahead of my time. Uh, but now I'm also part of that generationality where we go, oh, some of us are leaving this world now and others are being raised up into it. It's not just our kind of baby boomer cohort, you know, and and how we need to keep on uh, growing and redefining and making space for and also ensuring a certain legacy of that. So I think that that was part of the catalyst for forming Mensch work. Mm. That's interesting. I I don't want to go on a tangent, but you mentioned Western Connecticut and I'm thinking about Comega and I'm thinking, uh, why, why, what, why is Connecticut the hotbed of men's <laughs> retreats? Like, I don't, I don't understand. That's, well, if you, if you know Connecticut, you know why. It's well, part of the great mystery there. But, I guess yeah. that's true. I mean, I was born there, so I guess, you know. Perfect example. <laughs> Uh, but actually, I am thinking, I'm, I'm wondering now, um, because Comega strikes me as part of the sort of mythopoetic men's movement. Yes. And there seems to be a spiritual component to what you were talking about. But I, I, would you situate it also in that mythopoetic movement? Or would you say it's a, really a completely different branch? Well, completely different feels like, you know, although you said branch, which I like that idea. So I think our roots commingle mm -hmm. and co-influence each other. Uh, and... At the same time, I would say that part of our work, certainly through the Jewish men's um, movement and, and mensch work, has been uh, rooting us in tradition as well as being open to evolution and innovation. And so our stories going back thousands of years, yes, it wasn't framed in the same way of conscious male identity or LGBTQ con I consciousness and so on. Uh, and at the same time, we have this legacy, these stories, these traditions, which we update and are creative with and bring um, uh, a more um, male affirmative and feminist consciousness to the language. And so we don't, we're we not a more traditional movement in that way, uh, though we make space for people who are both secular and have more traditional practices. Hmm. And at the same time, we're 
um, you know, balancing that uh, innovation. So it's the myth and the poetry come from 4,000 years of Jewish evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not drawing, saying, how do we find ourselves? Let's go to the Greek myths or to other archetypes of the warrior and the lover and the poet. They're embedded in the tradition, mm -hmm. nor are we rejectionists to say, oh, that's other, because part of the, um, to frame it in terms of reconstructionist Jewish lenses, the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people has co-arisen in relationship to cultures and places and times, just as we're sitting here in North America having this conversation. Uh, you know, I, my own understanding about being a man is certainly shaped by my two great-grandfathers and my two grandfathers that I knew that were beloved to me and, you know, who were laughers and criers and, you know, huggers and teachers and, you know, so it's like there's there's interesting piece about the Jewish legacy that doesn't, has elements of the Western male archetype, but it's not like I've found that I've had to look outside my tradition to soften my heart or to, you know, acknowledge the cowboy or the entrepreneur or, mm -hmm, you know, like mm -hmm. the... The Zeus energy. Right, exactly, <laughs> you know, and somehow find another place in that. That So it's, it's really a kind of a both and, but we have developed in our own branch, I would say, uh, and, and been open to, because some of us have come to the Jewish men's work, for example, having been shaped by mythopoetic work or just through the recovery movement and men's groups there. Or, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different um, funnels that have come to that, uh, and and we have our own form of expression that we've been nurturing and developing, and drawing from the centuries that precede us. Hmm. You mentioned trying to accommodate all different traditions from the more orthodox to the more reconstructionist, and that was actually something. I'm glad you brought that up because that was a question that I was pondering when I before we, before we talked today. Um, because to to me as an outsider, and I'm just I'll just admit my outsiderness. Um, okay, how, how shall I say this? I think of orthodox uh, views on gender as being um, rooted in these older traditions. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wonder, like, how do you, I guess, how do you reconcile all the different traditions that seem to say very different things mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. masculinity, about a man's role in the family, in the world, in the church, etc.? Right, right, right. Well, here we are having this conversation in the age of Stissel. For example, a Netflix show that they picked up from Israel that lasted two years and now has become a worldwide sensation. Uh, and there's a new one in the pike now, and I just heard about another one. And this, in, this fascination with traditional forms that explore, as that show did, gender roles and the changing of them. And uh, you even have some of that exploration in a classic like Fiddler on the Roof, where the archetypes are very present of male and female roles, and yet they're constantly being upended throughout the whole thing. Uh, just like biblically, like, well, the eldest son will inherit. And every time the eldest son is, the tables are turned and the youngest son ends up, you know, Isaac, different than, than Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Joseph, not the older brothers. Mm -hmm. And so there's also a subversiveness, I think, that, that from the most traditional of Jewish lineages that also shifts up gender understanding and roles and challenges some of that, including stories where, um, you know, in, in, in the Torah in particular, where women step forward and they say, wait a minute, you know, it's not a burst of 
feminism as we know it now. It mm -hmm. may be like the daughters of Tzalafachan who say, there are no sons, is it right that we don't inherit anything? And that Moses and God as a team can confab and come back and say, you know what, actually you're right. Now we're not going to say if the firstborn daughter, because we're still of our times, but mm -hmm. we're going to say if there are no sons, the daughters inherit. You know, as an example where there's um, evolution within the most ancient part of our tradition that is um, leaving the door open for questioning and challenging and even reconstructing that way. So, uh, you know, I would add uh, for me the influences of both um, a reconstructionist, uh, reconstructing Judaism as well as Jewish renewal and Rabbi Zalman Schachter, Shalomi of Blessed Memory and um, uh, you know, when we're, where Yosef August and others of us met through um, uh, the Jewish renewal biannual gatherings, uh, you know, and all these kind of liberal Jewish, more contemporary offshoots uh, that have been born in the soil of North America and now have gone back to influence. So there's a co-influencing within the Jewish streams that way. Um, so I think at least for my influence growing up in a conservative Jewish environment, and then being exposed to reconstructing Judaism and Jewish renewal, for me it was like, oh, this fits totally perfectly. Where, you know, what, with honoring tradition but not being determined by it, and then being open to the current evolutions and expressions, which continue to change even our day, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like um, when uh, I, I wanted there to be, um, you know, more inclusion, even when it came to what's the bathroom signage and how we use gender terms here, mm -hmm. I, you know, I went to our teens to say, you know, some of whom want to be referred to as they, not she or he, or are questioning and we're working on new Hebrew expressions because Hebrew is a gendered language. Yeah. So it's a bar, bat mitzvah. And if it's plural, it defaults to the male plural in Hebrew. So wait, what did we call it if you don't want to be defined, you know, in a binary way? And so there's actually emerging language or we're working on that here. Sometimes we combine the genders in Hebrew is a way of dealing with what's not yet evolved, you know. Um, so we might pull a masculine introduction and then use a, a feminine pronoun as a way of dealing with that. And what I found really interesting is that locating gender identity in a larger values conversation, our teens were concerned when it came to signage, which by no means is the defining feature. I just want to qualify that. It's <laughs> right. sometimes like a diversion from like what it means to look at, at, at expansive gender identity. But in that practical expression of it, uh, we, they said, well, let's look for something that isn't like a straight figure or like a skirted figure, like the usual signage, but let's not leave out the wheelchair because our bathrooms are also the old signs also talk about exclusivity for various physical challenges. Mm -hmm. And we don't want our expression to then be exclusive that somebody know, wouldn't know that that, uh, that that bathroom is also accessible to them. So we refined the search online and found a sign that included what inclusivity means here beyond gender uh, expression. And uh, I was just, I, I want to credit our teens with that, not you know my <laughs> innate knowing, but them saying, you know, yes, let's address this issue and how it's represented so that we're more welcoming and we need to be careful as we're more welcoming that that doesn't eliminate and then exclude other people who are fighting for, you know, rights beyond the kind of typical, you know, white privileged roles or white male assumptions, you know, of, of the larger culture. And then, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about the fact that Hebrew 
as a language, you know, um, obviously evolves to some extent, but... You got, you're talking about a few, just like Chinese and other languages yeah. that have got millennia behind them. Yeah. They're coming from a very, they're, they're remnant of those earlier cultures and expressions and we wrestle with them and you know deal with them and emerge in a different place yeah yeah i'm thinking about uh it's not really a great corollary but the idea of latin being the lingua franca of the catholic church and how they've they've had to invent new latin because what how do you say World Wide web in latin you know <laughs> and so sort of this idea that but but I can totally see how certain people might say, no, no, this language has been this way for thousands of years. Uh, we're, people might be very resistant to those right, kinds right. of changes. Well, it's, it's great that you mentioned that because within Brother Keepers, the New Essays in Jewish Masculinities, the, the volume that, um, that Harry and I co-edited, there are explorations of this very, you know, um, uh, area. And we often we, we think that we who are contemporary or even postmodern, whatever the terminology is, like we're we're the ones that have surfaced these questions for the first time, mm. and then you go like, oh, it's interesting that you know um, that that Joseph in various traditions and iterations, you know, in in Middle Ages or in other traditions is um, you know seen as uh, uh, more feminine in, in certain portrayals, uh, or there are other examples of. The way dress or language is using that would challenge some traditional male norms in the larger cultures outside the Jewish culture hmm. in a particular time. So again, there's that that normativeness, tradition, and there's subversiveness woven in simultaneously, which I think for me part of the Jewish um, rabbinic mindset, which gets expressed in the certainly in the Talmud, rooted in the Torah and beyond, is these and these are the words of the living God. So there can be a majority and a minority opinion both recorded, hmm. knowing that two centuries later the minority opinion could become the majority, as opposed to majority rules and we never talk about the other view of this. And so I think that that gives us some of the antecedents to sometimes wrestle with these ideas within a framework that doesn't dismiss tradition, but is not determined by it. And at the same time, sometimes we get to a point, like for example, within Jewish men's work, where we go, you know, I understand that that's there, but we no longer subscribe to that. Mm -hmm. Like there can be a full stop in certain things. We're just, we're not going to use that language. Or on our retreat here, we understand that you grew up with that, but, you know, this is a different locker room that we're developing here, <laughs> you know. And I, I want to own that because sometimes it's like trying not to be judgmental of older male or even Jewish male understandings and paradigms while at the same time drawing a line and saying in the in these circles here's what we're going for and that I think was another catalyst for us um, you know forming mensch work as a nonprofit and having the website with our values articulated and you know really pushing ourselves to say here's we're going to continue to evolve here's what we stand for and at the same time we want to articulate that because there are other places in different universes to be a Jewish man or uh, a man who's um, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a Jewish household or raising Jewish kids uh, or the larger men's universe. And there are many quadrants that may not agree with each other. We want to be respectful and see the divinity in each person or the identity. If, if that capital I is more your way of expressing life's potential. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just be theological in this right. moment about it. 
Um, so, you know, for me, that that's sometimes to go, oh, you know, as, I, as I've wrestled with certain things, you know, with my dad, who's more of like the Mad Men generation, you know, grew, uh, you know, grew up in the 1950s and, mm-hmm. and 60s and was suddenly having kids at 20. Yeah, my dad uh, as well. Oh, interesting. Okay, yes. right. So, you know, in a soup of change and yet also of a different language and time and um, just even seeing how Alzheimer's has softened some of that edges and... And now he's like, oh my God, he's crying again. Like it just, you know, the, this emotion that's pouring out of him as his characterology is being deconstructed by neurosynaptic blockage and decay is revealing this other person underneath the surface of that that wasn't part of the vocabulary that he and I had mm. earlier. So it's just so, um, you know, interesting to see. It, it's kind of made me wonder it's like the nature nurture like what is identity in that way that all this has been in him but not necessarily easily accessed or expressed that he you know he's not come on one of our jewish men's retreats my stepson wants to come Mm -hmm. at some point you know and i think that would be great for us in our relationship Um, my dad's not someone who expressed interest in that and yet there we were recently with me helping him shave um, after i took him Sorry, for a workout recently when I visited them uh, up in, in Canada. And I mean, I'm very moved by the, the kind of sense memory of that, of the physical proximity and the openness and vulnerability of my you know, dad wanting me to do that for mm-hmm. him and us mm-hmm. having that moment. Uh, and you know, that, that itself would be enough. What really struck me is that as we're doing that in the change room, there's another man I noticed was watching us. And after we, he and I had washed up, and he's still capable of talking, he would be in this interview having something to say. He's not like, you know, in a chair, un- unexpressive at this moment. But there's this man who I don't know who's like, oh, are you his caretaker? And I said, well, no, actually, I'm his son. I'm just visiting and, you know, and took him, took him out, uh, you know, for the day. And he starts breaking down crying, and I'm hugging this total stranger in the men's locker room who's weeping because, as he said, I will never have this moment with my son because of the way I've treated him. And nothing I've been able to do has been able to repair that. And so I live with regret. And suddenly there's this confessional that came out of him witnessing a moment. And I wasn't at that moment going to say, well, this is even newer for my dad and I. Like, And I've had to put in, since I read Iron John and that book th- flew out of my hands and I started <laughs> to adjust the way I was with my parents to and saw some change with my dad because I created some of that change and our relationship started to shift. You know, that's like 25, 30 years in working. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now I don't necessarily know if Alzheimer's hadn't arrived, whether the same expression would be current. Um, but it just, it really kind of struck me the way being there with men of different generations, where we get trapped in ourselves and, and identities. And some of us like you and I are talking here have worked consciously to and still aspire to not like we've completed or arrived anywhere oh, not right? by any means. that's the day as soon as we say oh got that one that's the shadow going gotcha right mm-hmm. you know um whether it's working with like in the classroom like you and i also function or out in the world or doing you know uh having conversations such as we're having today so anyways i'm not i feel i'm being a little bit more stream of consciousness here because i was deeply affected by that incident recently mm-hmm. and for me it's also getting me to rethink these identities where I might have previously said, okay, my dad's generation, this is what he grew up with, I'm here, 
there's another new generation coming in which gender identity pronouns, all the sexuality is being expressed, manifested, talked about in a whole other way that as I, you know, have, have our young people come in and I accompany them on their journey for their bar, bat, or whatever we're going to call it now, right. mitzvah, yes. um, you know, that, that we're having all these other conversations and I'm like, I want to be open and learn from you because I don't want to be on high going like, I figured it all out because you're actually affecting change in a way that's, you know, paying it forward. And I can either pay attention to that or I can be, you know, kind of fossilized in my own period of development, but then I wouldn't hopefully continue to, to grow and change, which my, my grandparents and my great-grandparents, fathers, I should say, all of them, you know, both grandmothers and, and fathers, but they were role models for me of people that continued to adapt and change and weren't just, let me tell you about the old country, <laughs> but they were kind of like, I remember once, you may end up editing some of this out or not, but I used to be involved with social um, change and educational theater. I was in theater and film for about 15 years in Toronto, where I first became aware of and joined men's groups and the larger um, uh, men's universe as well as the Jewish men's universe that I became aware of and, and, and brought into that work, uh, and especially doing some of the social change theater. So we had a play on sexuality uh, and AIDS in the 1980s to help when they first broke publicly to help the school system deal with this at their request, which was phenomenal. And I really appreciate the, you know, Toronto School of Education <laughs> and the Canadian system that actually brought us to France to do that play internationally for UNESCO to say, we're, t we're willing to take this on. And so, you know, there I was in a play in high schools and workplaces dealing with gender identity and sexuality and, and, and yes, AIDS too, but not defining sexuality as we are now dealing with with the you know uh, AIDS challenge of AIDS and living with HIV. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, so all this to say that my my grandfather came to see one of the plays, and uh, I'm looking for him afterwards and I can't find him. And I was like, this is going to be a bit edgy. How's my my grandfather Aaron going to respond to this? And I can't find him. And then I see there's a hub of teenagers in a corner around somebody and so I just walked up to it he's in the middle and I'm hearing him say and then one day I was on the bus and I only had one condom and like it fell down a grate and I went and got that because there was no way that I was going to lose that one you know and like they're laughing hysterically and going oh my god like I've my grandfather came to this play and whatever my image of him there he is a live sexual being with these rap teenagers who have just seen us do a condom demonstration mm -hmm. listening to my grandfather's story you know, from the 1920s, when he like went after the one condom that he lost out of his pocket, you know. <laughs> so it's just like, I guess there's a theme emerging in what we're saying that that often we think linearly of evolution and progress. And I'm saying one pattern that for me that Jewish men's work has said is that there's cyclical natures, hmm. there's winding natures, and then there's a co-informing that antiquity and the present moment can have with each other that's worth swimming in that stream, both challenging it, not just doing it as, a, as a, oh, I'm going to take this all as a default, but not also saying, oh, there's nothing to be learned by what came before. Yeah, I, I, what I've been thinking of as you've been saying this is, is sort of the fathers and sons aspect of masculinities studies and masculinities theory has always been very important to me. And the dots that you're connecting that I think are really interesting to me are that it's not so much 
yeah, that there is a there can be a cyclical nature to that. So conflict between fathers and sons can be, if there is that, can, can exist for all kinds of reasons. But often, and then often it can be repeated in the next generation as the, 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 the son who was reactive to his father now has a son who's reactive to his father. And, um, but that might be the opposite reaction so that, the, so that the now grandson is more aligned with the grandfather. Yes, yes, you know. yes, yes. Um, Which is my personal experience yeah, in some too. respects. Yeah. Um, and, and also I see for uh, particular men in my generation where there's a little bit of like, how could this have happened? I mean, some of our, I've seen even in Mensch work that some of the sons of our uh, um, Jewish men that helped start uh, this adventure, uh, or, or inherited it and took it to the next level, are now part of our retreats. And increasingly, sons are bringing fathers, brothers are bringing brothers. Mm. You know, like that. You know, um, uh, you know, uh, people people are are coming who, um, you know, have either expressions, of, you know, in their self identity as transgendered or bi or you know, gay, etc. And uh, you know, and and saying, here's who I am. Uh, in in this mix, and I and I have a right to space here, uh, as well. But it's the intergenerational piece that's fascinating to me too. So some of the of our younger men um, are are showing up and are the inheritors, and they're now part of our leadership. Mm -hmm. I I also know friends who were like broke free from the traditional norms, were wearing their Birkenstocks and shorts, and you know whether they were in the Woodstock or the '70s generation or even the '80s now, who are going like, how is it that that my children became uh, orthodox, or they won't eat in my house mm -hmm. because I'm not keeping kosher or doing food the way that they need. Yeah. And then it comes down to what you were just saying, that their reaction to some of our expressions is to say, you know, it's all confusing and you're not clear about anything. And what do you mean being in process? You know, Gaia, the planet itself, is crying out and I need some more certainty. I mean, the, you take it to the edge and then you've got fundamentalism, which is, a, you know, as dangerous as any um, small o orthodox, pro quote, progressive thinking, right? As soon as we start to, you're not progressive enough, you know, then you get to that sort of f fundamentalism on the other side. So I don't want to say it's just swings to the right. And then suddenly we think we've laid the groundwork for the next evolution of that. And then, like you said, well, the reaction to our explorations is to say, too fuzzy for me. I need to, I need for someone to say this is what you do, you know, and have it more clearly defined. And then, so I, I've just seen the branches go in multiple directions. Yeah, you know, which which also how I see whether it's Jewish men's work or or um, male identity or masculinities work in general. By the way, I appreciate that what I learned from Harry and what you've mentioned is it's not masculinity, yes. but there are many T's <laughs> yes, uh, yes. with that, um, is that the way we invite people into the conversation needs to have a welcomingness that we have sought and, and worked hard for and not to come across in a way that also feels judgmental so that it pushes somebody else or the next generation into that sense of like, they feel as controlled as we felt when we were trying to break the shackles of prior constrictions. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes tough with those of us trying to affect change to sort of say the way one does, not just the content, but the process. And I think that's what I, I have been, you know, influenced by feminism and also some of the more conscious 
um, you know, work in masculinities is, the, is to pay attention to both. Not just, here's the point we're trying to make, like, why don't we all get enlightened? Mm-hmm. But actually the process we create, the container, we pay a lot of attention to that in our, our regional or annual Jewish men's retreats. Like, what's the arc from the beginning? What's the theme of the weekend? How people will be, you know, brought in? Where are the places for expression? Where are the places to say, these are our values right now? So, guys, we're going to hold it. You know, I know we've gotten a little bit kibitzy in this moment, you know, and I grew up with a dad like that, too. But let's hold the energy in this space. Let's not diffuse it right now with some humor that we, you know, got from the larger locker room because it actually undermines the speaker who's trying to say something. And we Mm -hmm. want to hold attention for that, Um, you know, or let's just let it go and let's like be all together in a you know, a mosh pit of a closing circle and like we do at the men's retreat, you know, the 70 or eight of us start off in one big circle, but we do a spiral with a closing song and we end kind of crunched together, you know, with this big chant to, you know, I mean, people should, of course, find whatever spatial need they have, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're, we're sort of allowing for different proximities that way, but we're not necessarily saying you're either up close you know, and that's real intimacy between men because, you know, the distance doesn't work anymore. Um, and that would be an example of like some of the judgment that might push someone away if we only said this is the new way and it's the one way that you can express yourself. That's always the danger, I think, when we were exploring certain things. Yeah, that that's that really resonates with me because I, I'm, I'm thinking about um, when you say non-judgmental. One of the things that comes to mind and one of the criticisms I've faced, because I also use language like male affirming or, or, or but then people say, well, yeah, but what about all of the harm of patriarchy? You know, what about all of the sort of like, how do we hold men accountable? And this is a little bit of an abstract question. I'm not expecting a direct answer, but sort of how do we hold men accountable for absolutely the things that men have done historically, capital M men, right. without... Um, and how do we hold men now accountable for any complicity they might have in that without um, basically turning them against the work, right? right? right. Because, and so I, I just, I, I, you've already said, I think, a little bit how you're doing that, but um, does that make sense? Oh, very much so. I think you're really on, you're on the, the you know, um, the tzitzit, as a word you, a Jewish word I was going to use, on one wears a prayer shawl, and in the Torah we're directed to wear fringes, uh, and the rabbis developed the number six hundred and thirteen. That was their math work about how many directives there were in the, in the Torah, and so one ties the knots and the fringes to add up to that number. To, uh, whereas in the Torah it says, and wear fringes on your garments so that you remember you know, to be connected with me and, and my paraphrase, you know, be the best human being you can in life. Like it's a, a reminder, you know, it's like the post-it note to yourself. So, um, you know, the, as you were saying that, I was thinking like, you know, that how do we remind ourselves to, to wake up and to own the privilege that we have? Um, and for me, it's the, your question... Mm, evokes a multi-layered response for me because I want, you know, for our listeners, here I am sitting as a presenting white male, cisgendered male in, in, in the universe, right? <laughs> that comes with a lot of privilege and its own baggage. And for me, it would be 
undermining of the work to say, I don't benefit from that. Mm -hmm. So one way is how we get um, men to own, in this particular case we're talking about white males, however they identify, but how they present as well, to own that we walk in and there's certain assumptions and privileges that we benefit from the, the world in the, in the culture in which we have are part of or helped construct that we shouldn't get a pass on, right? And at the same time, of course, I'm a white Jewish male mm -hmm. of Ashkenazi, you know, descent, which is that, you know, Central and Eastern European um, descent. And so I can also be in the room where I can feel a bit uncomfortable or sometimes not as secure around other white males, if I, especially if I'm the only one, you know, in that regard or, you know, in a culture in which we're also dealing with anti-Semitism and racism and prejudice that's very live right now. Yeah, I was so, going to say institutional you know, institutional anti-Semitism in, in American culture, certainly. Right. And, and at the same time, I don't want that to be, oh, well, I don't have to explore the white male privilege because I'm also Jewish. So I, for me, part of Jewish lineage says you hold polarities and tensions, both naming white supremacy and white privilege and white male privilege in particular. Uh, in the case of our conversation, I'm talking about the added nuance of what it means to navigate the Jewish piece of my identity and living in this world at, at that same time and owning that both are at play and neither should be a pass over doing the work or acknowledging that there are benefits and also challenges uh, in both. And it comes back to your point of, well, how do we do the work? And so if we blame and shame, it tends to keep certain oppressions locked in or, like you said, alienate. Neither do we want to say, oh, well, we can't raise these issues because, you know, men or white males may feel alienated. Well, we got to get with the program. <laughs> you know, I mean, that itself is an exercise of privilege that women in our society, um, you know, if, if I'm identified as gay, lesbian, bi, transgendered, queer, if I'm a person of color, you don't get those options. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, I, if I'm a, a different socioeconomic class and I'm like, where's the meal going to come from today? Do you know what I mean? There are certain things that, that I try to remind myself that are, are privileged positions. And how to do that work, which is, I think, the quest of a lot of our work in masculinities, is to do the conscious raising, the behavior change, taking action for the sake of our, ourselves, all human beings in the planet, and doing so in a way that frees up more energy to affect that change without um, having people then react or lock in. Because then we haven't, there's no victory in that, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And we haven't created more allies along the way. Yeah, and I feel like the first step is is acknowledgement of privilege, but, but acknowledgement in the sense of one of the, one of the elements of privilege is that one can think one doesn't have an identity at all in certain in certain contexts, right? So uh, me being at the sort of top rung of the white male cis privilege ladder, I don't often have to think about my whiteness. I don't often have to think about being cisgender. And so to me, that I think that's the way in is sort of like getting men to understand you might not even be aware of this aspect of your identity. And it's a privilege even to be able to not be aware of that. Right. And so waking up to awareness of that your identity exists, 
even though you're part of a non-marginalized group, right? Um, I think, I feel like that's the way in without, without, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm thinking about the research that I've read about trying to reach men with messages of you know, feminism or, or anything like that. And that men, for all kinds of reasons related to masculinity, shut down. They won't listen. They become oppositional right away when, when, when you frame things certain ways. And I don't think the answer is to sort of, quote, coddle men. But I also think the answer isn't to scold because I feel like that just that doesn't get the message across. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, you know, I, I, if I had the answers, I, I, I wouldn't be talking to all people like you <laughs> trying to get more answers. Well, you're you're you have a lot of wisdom and answers inherent in, in who you are. You wouldn't be doing this work and questions because that's also part of how we affect change. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not to confirm data mm -hmm. and then give grand missives, you know, um, you know, I, I love one of the, the Mel Brooks movies, uh, you know, uh, who he's constantly poking fun at identities. Uh, the, the, I don't know if you've ever seen it, The History of the World, Part 1. Mm -hmm. And Moses is coming down. I give you the 15 commandments. And he drops one and it shatters. He goes, I mean the 10 commandments. <laughs> you know, like I had five other things I was going to tell you how to be. And I like, I just dropped them, you know, and who knows what they were. So we'll go with 10. Um, you know, so I think we can get into that that game of like, here's the core ideas you must no, to be hip, which itself is also a dated word, even as I'm using that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whatever the, the more appropriate word is th these days. Uh, and there's a dimension, as you were uh, talking, Alex, that I feel is um, inherent in this work, too, is exploring internalized oppression and where even the privileges we carry and are actually holding us back, too. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think, you know, when it comes to the discussion, then, and, and we edge into some of that within our, our Jewish masculinities exploration through Mensch work. Um, it's in some of the essays in, in the book in that way, too, um, in work of combating racism or prejudice, um, uh, sexism, homophobia, whatever, is, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, exploring where internalized oppression also ingested by us is a barrier to um, breaking free from uh, being held in certain roles, then I also find, in this case of our subject matter, men are more like, oh, right, like being the breadwinner, not expressing my feelings, um, uh, always being the one too, uh, laying my body out and then my life is expendable to defend the a country no matter how crazy the thing is that I don't actually agree with. Like there's a lot of things that are inherent in that white male identity that are actually destructive for men. Mm -hmm. And that when we, I found that when men are not only made aware of, like you say, the privilege pack that we carry, but also the oppression that's inherent in that, it, it becomes more of an opening and it also becomes a way of developing compassion and empathy for, oh, you mean, I may not have the same experience, but I see now like other people are suffering in a different way and I want to be their ally so we all get freed. You know, that phrase, none of us are free until all of us are free that way, that, I, that I'm an agent for everybody's liberation, including my own. Um, now, that, it means some navigating. I remember earlier on in the 80s uh, and 90s when I began doing more conscious men's work or Jewish men's work in the community, I was getting a, a couple calls, just to be transparent about this. I understand you do um, 
man's work, could you come and do a workshop for how to defend against feminism yeah. or how to protect, you know, male traditions or, and I'm, you know, and I was like, whoa, okay. Um, how do I not respond in a way that alienates the person, but also doesn't say, oh no, I'm not available that day. <laughs> you know, so I found myself kind of crafting uh, or as a consultant, because I would go in and do um, uh, for organizations, profit and nonprofit leadership, team building work, and uh, you know prejudice reduction work, and so on. And so I was like, okay, I hear what you're saying. You know, that's not what I do, and here's the reasons why I do what I do. <laughs> I found it was like I got more of an ear as opposed to saying why I would never do that and why you're a moron for calling me like, like, this is terrible what you've just asked me to do. This is part of the problem. That that wasn't going to affect much change. Right. If anything, it was probably going to, you know, harden Pharaoh's heart, uh, you know, if, if anything else. Yeah, he was just so, going to lump you in with all the feminists. It, and, exactly, and, and then we're written off. Right. But, but I did find I got a listening when I said, here's what I do, that sometimes I actually got invited in because there would be a shift in consciousness and an openness to having that discussion. Other times it was like, okay, no, that is definitely not what we want to do, but that was interesting to hear. So, you know, that's kind of the... the and, and I think the alignment, too, about how we are as men with each other. I remember, um, and I want to give some credit to uh, Bly in this case, Robert Bly and some of the mythopoetic work, which also influenced me, uh, particularly in the, in um, in the... Uh, in the 80s, that when I read Iron John, and I read this one piece where he talked about uh, his father. Now, my father's not alcoholic, but um, certainly had anger built into part of his expression. And, um, and he talked about how he would come home and he would sit and chat with his mother for hours at, at the table, and his father would be in this other room watching television. And then this time where he decided to deal with whatever fear or even not really wanting to hang out with his dad in that way, but he went in and he sat next to his dad and then watched TV. And then slowly, over time, a conversation would kind of start. And how he noticed he needed to shift the construct of the interaction that had been hardwired into the family system. And that started a shift with his relationship with hmm. his father which was different than sitting down. And I remember doing this with my dad. You don't love me. You don't, I didn't have the language then, but you're not sitting like you and I are here today talking to each other face to face. Like, you know, like you're not expressing yourself in the way that I have been, you know, acculturated to, you know, speak more through, um, my, you know, my mom and women's lineage and some of my grandfather's expressions like that. So, you know, I was often coming to him with the, with the you're not enough or, the, you know, in whatever way that I could do the best I could at the time yeah. uh, in that way, still sort of sending out a branch or a flare whatnot. Um, and so when I read that in the book, literally, I remember like the, I, I still to this day feel the book jumped out of my hands. I just remember <laughs> it flying out against the wall and dropping on the floor because it, it reverberated through my soul to the degree that next time I was visiting my parents, instead of just walking ahead with the, we had two dogs at the time, instead of just walking ahead with my mom, I started to shift between holding back and walking with my, or moving ahead and just walking with my dad, and not only spending the whole time talking about all these, you know, deep issues and expressing feelings with my mom, but actually just started walking silently with my dad. 
and then he started to talk to me and then we went to the gym together and I noticed that piece about being side by side which also helped me in being a, a, a step parent to young men as well mm. you know or teenagers you know uh, even today I'll take the bar but mitzvah and say let's go for a walk around the block as soon as we get out of the office you know I'm the kids, the young adults, and whatever the best term is, they start talking a mile a minute as opposed to me just interviewing them face to face, you know, as an older adult, or I learned in some different male cu cultures and expressions that that is uh, less threatening and more accessible, and that more emotional expression or face to face might evolve out of that as more intimacy is built. So I want to appreciate the influences that have been given to me, and I say this not just as here's what we ought to be doing. But my own experience and my relationship with my father began to change when I started to change the form of our communications and not only show up to him as the son that was saying, here's what you're not giving me. Right? So that, that may be a way on an um, interpersonal level when we talk about how we affect change, not only institutionally and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and globally, but, but personally. And as I'm hearing myself speak to you, I also want to say, and there are circumstances in which there are abuse or violence or whatever, that it's like, you don't go there. Yeah, of course. You know, like, let's not, let's not say that, oh, if you just go and, like, walk alongside. No, sometimes part of it is we need to free ourselves. We need to cut off contact. We need to start differently, surround ourselves by people who are more supportive. And um, that's, that's equally been one of the, the lessons for me. Um, I see that in kind of Jewish tradition about, you know, the younger, the perceived sometimes weaker, getting support and actually being the one who the, the, the lineage gets handed to, not just the stronger, you know, or the one that can grab the mic more uh, so in that way. It's like um, one thing that Rabbi Zalman Schachter, Shalom, a blessed memory, one of my teachers, said is like, be careful not to surround yourself by people who bring out the smaller self only. You really need people in your life who bring the greater self, the you that who you know you can be in life. And so that made an impression on me that way. Even as we're talking about men's work, um, I no longer see that my mission is to get, is to be, try to bring a light into all situations. Sometimes there's someone better than me. It's not my place to be. I've got too much reactivity around an issue and still some place to grow uh, in that. Um, or be better. In fact, why am I saying what is my role? Why am I not saying bringing in my my you know my buddies and saying this is for us to deal with? You know, uh, even as a rabbi of a congregation, sometimes saying, okay, let's bring this into a larger container to have the con uh, conversation with, and not just be you know in um, you know in, in a particular role and a single voice in a situation. Yeah, yeah. I'm also. I'm, uh something that's resonating with me in what you're saying is the, the, the even the definitions of sort of intimacy and communication that we have um, sometimes parallel interaction side by side interaction can be a type of intimacy sometimes side by side intimacy can be of of greater value to another person and this seems to be particularly true of men um, than face-to-face -face intimacy and so I think yeah one of the things I think about in men's work is understanding that if a man is resistant to the face-to-face -face kind of communication and intimacy, that doesn't mean that there's no intimacy there or there's no potential right. for intimacy. Right. There might just, we might need to change our approach, right. which I sort of hear you saying is like the container. I think this is the idea of the container in which the interaction is existing. 
Yes, yes, and and with its additional sensitivities to cultural constructs. So, like you and I walking hand in hand down the street in some you know parts of the world would be seen as just like you know I used to do that with my grandfather. You mm -hmm. know, like like that's just perfect you know male expression with each other, where it would be triggering you know in other places or even risky, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, for us in, in in certain places. So there's a kind of like what's what's the social cultural norms in the area and what are we trying to switch and like you say being open uh, to those variables to explore a variety of expressions because that may open up without judging them a lot more possibility and that's what I, I found a relationship with my father that came from me adapting mm -hmm. as opposed to always telling him who he was not for me and uh, you know and sometimes you just go okay if I've got a certain awareness I got to make the move here uh, it's not going to shift because I keep, you know, telling somebody who they're not, uh, you know, in, in, in that in that respect. Um, and yeah, getting back to what we were saying earlier, you know, because I think I think that could be perceived as a kind of shaming in a way. And when people have a shame response, they, they tend to shut down. Right, right. It's not a way to reach people. Right, right. And, and it's that fine line because then we're also... How do you intervene in behavior? And this is where we have a lot of models for change, dialogue, interrupting prejudice, and so and so that can help us to say when this, because I don't want to be sitting there going, ha, 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 like laughing along yes. with the sexist remark or homophobic remark or whatever it may be, because it gives me a greater sense of bonding or whatever that may be. Yes. And, uh, what was it? The Billy Bush moment with, with, with Donald Trump. Uh -huh, uh -huh, right. Uh -huh. Where 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 he even sort of said, oh, I don't believe any of that. But, you know, I was I was interviewing him and we were being chummy and right, therefore right. I, I went along talk. with it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that's a that's a part of masculinity in some ways. This idea of the this idea of brotherhood in a sort of a, the negative way of brotherhood, which is we're all brothers, you know, like, hey, go along with this. You know, don't criticize me. Right. But no, I, there's got to be a place to criticize when things are worthy of criticism. Right, right. Right, I think if we can, there may be the personal dimension to it, but not just make it personal and talk about, you know, what the larger pattern is at play, then hopefully we have some chance to, at the end of the day, if our goal is to change consciousness and be of greater aid to brothers and sisters, however we define ourselves and this planet, which really is saying... I'm almost done with you not paying attention. Like I'm moving ahead with implosion because like that's what the cause, the ripple effect is, and you're just going to have to deal with it now. Um, and I and I say that not to be alarmist, but when I think of my working with younger people, and and again uh, as to our conversation today, um, younger men or younger Jewish men, uh, in in some of the other work, their awareness and their distress about what's happening with the planet is becoming more and more elevated mm -hmm. and the projects they want to do for their their bar mitzvah has to do with water and environmental issues and etc and so i feel that where's want to pay attention not only to the past and its lineage and our moment but where what's the future asking us to pay attention to um you know that's another reframing of the idea of messiah or mashiach which is from the hebrew word also limshoch which means to draw forward uh, is the sense of it's not about a messianic area of some supernatural intervention. It's about what is the future asking us to pay attention to. For me, that's what messianic consciousness means. I'm not waiting for a first or a second coming. I'm actually trying to say, okay, what, what does it mean 
in this case to be a man uh, or a Jewish man in this, this age and what is being asked of us to pay attention to now because the future is coming towards us. And we need to use software terms be forward compatible, not only the latest iteration. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so that for me is I think what is beholden on us in the work that we're doing is not, not only to feel hopefully good about the contributions we've made, but also saying how is this, or what, what do we need to pay attention to and what do we need to set up or nurture in men that are coming in other generations that you know, will have a little bit more savvy or even energy in some places uh, or, or more longevity than, than we have and to empower them to both step aside and nurture and also be part of the conversation. I think that, that is an issue that I want us to take a look at that we're trying to do through Menchwork right now too is that cross-generationality. Because uh, all too often what I find is like, then it's you know, sort of the Greek lineage, the Oedipal lineage is very different than the Jewish lineage of honoring your mother and father and the other generations. So you know, the idea of like, I've got to kill off the father in order to take my place, I don't think is what our time or our planet uh, needs right now. Um, you know, I respect that it is a, is a form particular of expression that we need to claim our own places as men. But I think part of the, the forward compatibility is to have the generations together, um, which I appreciate in either here in the synagogue life or in the mensch work life that, you know, we're now starting to mourn some of the men that were founders who are leaving this world, you know, and we're also got some younger ones coming in for the first time or men who are... Um, middle-aged who never were in this conversation before and it's the first time you know that they're here and that's a new you know piece for them as well mm-hmm. so I think that's something I also draw when I think specifically about Jewish men's work is that that intergenerationality and honoring um, uh, you know the the various voices that are coming in at this simultaneously in this moment uh, well and we're we're at we're at an hour, so I, I, I do want to ask one more question. It might sure. be a little bit long, so <laughs> so and, and and feel free to answer it, but in as much detail as you'd like. But I'm thinking, um, to what extent maybe does your work um, intersect with this, or just how do you feel about you know how do we reach non-Jewish men? Because of course, one of the things I'm thinking about is that you know marginalized men have to form their identities not just in the sense of their own groups, but in in the climate of a culture that makes assumptions about them that aren't correct because of institutional anti-Semitism and all of these other kinds of things. And so, is there like an example when you think of? Well, I mean, I'm thinking about like you know people who have stereotypes about Jewish men. I, I can't. I can't for the life of me think of one off the top of my head, but like, and then if, if I'm now uh, an adolescent, you know, 12 or 13 year old boy um, about to have my bar mitzvah and I'm thinking like I'm becoming a Jewish man, that's not just happening in the context of the, of the community of people around me who may or may not be Jewish, but it's also happening if I'm like the only Jewish kid at my school or if I'm, you know, the only Jewish kid in my hobby group. Right. And now I'm having imposed upon me these, very long-standing institutional ideas of Jewish masculinity that have no basis in anything because they're coming from the larger culture, the right, white, right. heterosexual, cisgender, male, you know, right, right. Christian, whatever culture. Right. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I think it, it's one of the things that 
fueled our work to do it in this area, and also that we do need to address from the perspective of, even when I think of the, the men and the various universes they occupy that come to our Jewish men's retreats, uh, and the relationships that they're in, where they're, who their kids are partnering with. Mm-hmm. Um, let's also talk about intimacy constellations where someone's in their second or their third, uh, you know, long-term committed partnership, whether they define that as marriage or, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and there's multiple kids and the partners are from different backgrounds and, or in our community where we have a lot of, in, you know, interfaith couples and, and um, you know, and, and people who are Jewish and of color. Hispanic, African-American, Asian, whatever it may be, um, as well as looking at their own gender identity and maybe they want to claim more of a fluidity identity, that that's really true for them right now, or they're, they're interested in pronouns uh, because by principle and not, not only in terms of how they see themselves, but how they see others and mm. how they want to ally with. Mm. I'm just thinking like you said that and I started to think of our community in which all <laughs> these things are a factor. So it's even here, it's not just the, the white Jewish normative, uh, you know, model yeah. that many of our kids wouldn't relate to, um, uh, you know, a, a, a North, a kind of white pale young Orthodox man studying for hours or a Woody Allen or, yeah, or even yeah. me saying Mel Brooks before. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. they might know more of like the Adam Sandler or, um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the um, uh, transgendered or, um, uh, gay African uh, American Jewish uh, rabbi that they have, or like you know, like things that are emerging in that way that we even have to be careful about assumptions of what the normative definition is within our own communities. Mm-hmm. That way, mm-hmm. I mean, that that having been said, what you're talking about in terms of what we have to navigate is, um, you know, you and I are sitting here in a large urban center, uh, you know, in in a very multicultural cities such as Philadelphia, which has socioeconomic segregation more so than necessarily, you know, we also have 27% of the of people we live with who are living, you know, on the poverty line and 12 in, you know, in intense poverty mm-hmm. that way, surviving day by day. So it's, there's a, there's a lot of mixed things going on in, in a diverse city such as Philly, but I'm glad you talked about, you know, urban centers because then there's suburban and then there's rural, and I think of what it is to be a boy or a man in those, and, uh, and Jewish on top of that, and it's a very different path, mm-hmm. depending on where you're located, for sure. So I just want to name the variables that we we have to work with, um, and and also not assume. For me, there's a just a, a red flag that you raised to not assume that the large urban city conversation where we're in a sanctuary city. We're in a city where, like, our our political spectrum gets represented a lot, and the values that you and I are more familiar and friendly with than some that may, you know, be more. If we travel to certain parts, you know, ringing Philadelphia and into other parts of the state, while that's shifting, it would be a very different conversation, mm-hmm. and our assumptions would be much more um, uh, challenged, or you know. Uh, subject to their own criticism, you know, or, or seen of threat. So I think we gotta we gotta take that in, and at the still same time, like we've talked about before, take a stand somehow. 
Yeah. You know, and, 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 and whether that, whatever that risks or whatever privilege we have to relinquish um, or stand up for, and we each of us have to measure our risk factor in that, there's just a lot of st- at stake here. Um, and I'm saying this not because I'm telling you, but more I'm thinking of myself like, oh, what is it to be like, you know, where I work with New Sanctuary Movement or we're part of Power Philadelphia, you know, one of the largest interface social justice networks. And, you know, we're at the front lines of a lot of things. And I'm aware as I'm ringing the ICE building, you know, with, with our other partners uh, and we're chanting and I, I know I'm being uh, monitored you know, in that level. And at the same time, being silent is not an option or that's an option that privilege may give you, mm-hmm. you know. So when it comes to issues of male identity or the Jewish male path or uh, seeing as allies in terms of, like you said, uh, how do we learn from each other uh, in, the, in the larger men's masculinities exploration? Um, I think it's making space for all of the stories and clarifying our values in that regard and knowing that we're going to be changed by the process. I can't remember where I read it, but there was something that said to me that that if you come into a dialogue with the point of view that you want to communicate to somebody else, you are no longer in a process. You are in a perspective. If you come in to share what what your your feelings, meanings, beliefs, things that are you're important and passionate with, and recognize that by virtue of being in that dialogue, you will be and can be changed, then you're in a process. Because to be in a process doesn't mean, by definition, you're coming out in the same place as you thought you were coming into. Yeah, it wouldn't be a process. Right, it wouldn't be, right, right. So I try to remain that, remind that, uh, uh, connected to that as we balance process and content. Because we're not values neutral. I mean, then you can get a, well, what do you actually stand for? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we are the world. All people are in the divine image. Well, that's great. And why is this person still not getting a job? Or why are men of a certain physical typology or expression being excluded? Or, you know, why are you saying you're not man enough? Like, So I think that there's some pieces that are definitely important for us to keep wrestling with. Um, and I, I derive for me some direction and, and support from uh, rabbinic Jewish tradition that talks about turning each letter um, in, 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 you know, around because in each of it unlock, in combination, unlocks a different meaning. So turn it, turn it, because in each turning there is a new set of meaning. And so that's a century old aphorism that feels helpful for me too, that it's kind of like Da Vinci Code time, like that, you know, as the, to unlock what's important in the truth of our time as as it is shifting and changing and what are what we might claim are more eternal human values that are inherently who we are if we're given the chance and the nurturance uh, and and the willingness to claim them um, that that will have um, be freer uh, and that we all will be ultimately freer and live in a world that uh, is is welcoming and that helps us develop as men in ways that we can't even perceive now because it's happening biologically right in relation to the environment so i think it also can happen in the jewish mystical world understanding of the four worlds that there's physical emotional intellectual and spiritual aspects to everything and they're all interarring at the same time 
So, um, so let's be open to that in, in the work that we do together as men. That's a wonderful sentiment to end on. <laughs> Um, if, uh, if people want to reach you or especially support your work, um, could you tell us websites we could go to or, sure. or information about how to get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, well, www.rabbizevit.com uh, is a website. And there's some of the essays on um, uh, Jewish masculinity that I have that are, that are up there. Uh, Menschwork.org uh, is another place uh, to go. Uh, as well, and uh, mishkan.org is where I'm here. Most where of, we are right well, now. Where we are right now, most <laughs> of the days. And so those are, I think, uh, you know, some some portals to, to places. And uh, um, and also, if you want to uh, contact me uh, through my website, rabbisevit.com, there's a way to do so. Because I also have, I built them into, into the book. Unfortunately, Brother Keepers, as you and I were talking about pre-interview, uh, published by Men's Studies Press. Men's Studies Press went under a year and a half ago, kind of victim to, you know, the printing press challenge, but also how are we nurturing and supporting men's thinking and thoughts to get out there in the same way? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's available, you know, maybe online some places, but um, if someone's looking for other resources or publications, I built them into the book in the further resources, but I have that electronically that I could also... Um, sent to somebody. And then I see, you look around as well. Here at Mishkan, there's a Men of Mishkan group um, that, that come together. There's our annual retreat, uh, which is coming up at the end of October, Menchwork. Uh, so at, that's that you can find information, menchwork.org. And I also want to say, in, in the age you were referring to it beforehand that we're in, um, I also function in, as a Jewish spiritual director and train Jewish spiritual directors through the Aleph program. Uh, uh, for that and that what I find increasingly is I'm being asked to fulfill that role for people from other traditions hmm. and so in this the on one hand we've got this fired up prejudice in the world as change is pressing up against some previously established ideas at the same time you know we're in the we're in the world foodie and music world where everything is viral and you know within a year someone could hear a melody at India, and this is an example of one Jewish prayer that there's a melody for now, for Psalm 150, that um, uh, Israelis serving post-military went to decompress in, in India, kind of renew their own spirits from the, the difficulty of that, that service, and um, you know, heard a Sufi master, Ali Khan, singing a melody uh, in, in Arabic, and brought it back and set it to Psalm 150, and then Americans heard it, and within the same year, it's like a top hit in synagogues across the United States and Canada. So, like, that's the world we live in that used to take centuries or decades. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a cross-pollination now that we can be open to and benefit from when it comes to our conversations about masculinities as well. So this isn't exclusive to one tradition or view, and at the same time, we want to honor, nourish, and celebrate, just like in the biodiversity of the universe, that where there's less diversity, the environment suffers and is more prone to disease and destruction uh, as our rainforests burn, as you and I speak here, uh, that is harming all of us. So too, I think we, we, we want to be um, not just generalists, but also honor specificity as a place of creativity 
uh, and that allows us to, to flourish and to support those nuances. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Sean. It was really wonderful talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much. We're, I want to shake your hand if that's okay. Yeah. Right? We're doing so on the across the microphone. I was thinking here. that too, and then I was like, oh, but I don't know. But yeah, yeah. If you and I are here in this moment, that's the truth of it. That's true. Okay. Well, shalom, salam, and peace to all um, uh, brothers and sisters, and uh, um, you know, and however we define ourselves in this universe, and hope that and appreciate you for this series and what you're contributing to the larger conversation. Thank you. Well, there you have it. My interview with Rabbi Sean Zevit. I was so impressed with his willingness to share so much, uh, not only uh, about his career and his work right now, which is impressive and interesting enough, but also just so much about his history in the men's movement. And, and I'm always, always looking to talk to people who have been involved in this movement since, you know, the 70s or 80s. Uh, I sort of came into the movement in generation two, you might even say generation three. And so I always, always want to be in touch with the history of the men's movement. And he had some wonderful things to say about that. And then, of course, just his his kindness, his compassion, his empathy, the way that he approaches uh, working with men now, but also just his, his personal stories. He told such wonderful personal stories. And I really, again, appreciate the, the time, the effort and intensity uh, and his vulnerability that he was willing to give us. If you'd like to find out more about this project or this podcast, but you know, the project overall, talklikeaman.net is the place to go. And that's where that will link you to all of our various social media projects, including our Patreon page. And I'd like to take a minute to acknowledge our producer, Gadi Ben Yehuda, who has been uh, a wonderful and generous contributor to the Patreon page. And again, also just thank all of you who contribute in any way. Uh, we have some great members on our Facebook pages, both the, the Talk Like a Man page and the Talk Like a Man group, people who are posting fairly frequently, which is really nice because I don't want it to always be things that I find. I really like it when it's also things that the other members of the community find and contribute. And I often find that those are things that I just didn't see or maybe wouldn't have thought to share with the group at large. So that's always a wonderful thing. And I, I appreciate that very, very much. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Talk Like a Man is affiliated with the Men's Center for Growth and Change, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit organization whose mission is to help men and boys realize their full potential to love and positively connect with others. For more information, please visit mencenterphilly.org. To find out more about the Talk Like a Man project, visit talklikeaman.net.